0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Former National Security Advisor Flynn pleads guilty to lying to the FBI. Another misconfigured AWS account is found. Cobalt is either careless or engaged in misdirection. There's election trolling and mutual suspicion between Russia and the U.S. Kaspersky says his company didn't, doesn't and won't spy for the Russian government as U.S. agencies begin to purge their systems of his security software. Black Friday fraud seems to be down this year, South Korea's investigation of domestic election meddling by its Cyber Command sharpens, and Roman Selesnev gets another 14 years on carding charges. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, December 1st, 2017. In some breaking news out of Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russian influence operations, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn has entered a plea of guilty to charges of lying to the FBI. The retired Lieutenant General appeared this morning in a Washington federal court where he acknowledged that he was cooperating with Mueller's investigation. Flynn said he made false statements to FBI investigators about conversations he held with the Russian ambassador to the United States, Sergei Kislyak. Beyond this development, the week ends as it began with news of a misconfigured cloud account. In what's becoming a dog bites man story, or maybe even an evergreen one, another unsecured Amazon Web Services S3 bucket has been found, open online and misconfigured for public access. This one held data belonging to the National Credit Federation, the NCF, and contained some 111 gigabytes of data, much of it in the form of sensitive credit records. The Tampa-based NCF is a membership-based organization whose mission is, in their own words, to help people who are currently in or have successfully come through a financial crisis take back control of their finances and credit, allowing them to achieve their financial dreams. Up to 40,000 individuals may have been affected, their data exposed, but UpGuard, which found the misconfigured bucket, says it saw no evidence anyone had actually stolen the information. The database has since been secured. The Cobalt hackers, criminals who targeted financial institutions with fish-baited malware, may have committed a misstep, bleeping computer reports. Some of their spam appears to reveal their intended targets in the most obvious place, the emails to field as opposed to the customary BCC field you'd use if you don't want all the addresses to see one another. But there's speculation this may be misdirection intended to send security researchers on a wild goose chase while Cobalt unobtrusively pursues its real targets. As more reports emerge of the scurrilous content of Russian election trolling in the U.S., extending to violent fantasy, Satanism, racism, and so on, It seems Russia also feels itself under threat. The Kremlin thinks it sees a coordinated U.S. campaign to turn Russia's oligarchs against their government. This is believed in Moscow to be the real goal of U.S. sanctions imposed after Russia's green men began their slow-motion re-engorgement of Ukraine. The tweets reporters found that could be attributed to the Internet Research Agency, a St. Petersburg troll farm, were aimed at creating mistrust, cross-currents of intergroup hatred, chaos, and an atmosphere in which U.S. institutions would be discredited in the eyes of much of the public. Eugene Kaspersky has continued to vociferously object to charges that his company, Kaspersky Lab, was engaged in spying on behalf of the FSB or any other Russian intelligence service. He said this week that if he were told to do so by any of those services, he and his company would quit Moscow. The widely credited charge that Kaspersky has cooperated with the FSB has, he said, this much foundation in truth. The FSB in Russia is responsible for investigating cybercrime. So in addition to its role in developing foreign intelligence, the FSB plays a law enforcement role in Russia, similar to the role the FBI and the Secret Service have in the United States. And Kaspersky does indeed cooperate with the authorities in the investigation of cybercrime. The company's founder says they've been the victim of an orchestrated campaign by the U.S. government to discredit them. That said, the US government's ban on Kaspersky software continues. Federal agencies are reported to have completed their scans for Kaspersky security software as required by the Department of Homeland Security. About 15% of the federal agencies found the security software. They have until the 19th of this month to remove it. A quick look back at Black Friday weekend suggests good news. According to Lovation, credit card fraud appears to be down 29% from 2016. The reasons for the drop are complex, but two stand out. Brick-and-mortar retailers are benefiting from widespread adoption of chip-and-pin technology, and online retailers have taken advantage of new techniques of device intelligence to prevent fraud in transactions where the card is not physically present. The four-day period that showed the drop in fraud ran from Black Friday through Cyber Monday. A team of investigators formed by South Korea's Ministry of Defense is said to have concluded that the Republic of Korea's Cyber Command illegitimately sought to influence 2012's domestic elections. Lyft, Uber's rival in the ride gig market, has been enjoying a good year, which many attribute in part to Uber's problems with leadership, litigation, and most recently a massive data breach. Lyft is said by TechCrunch to have tripled its revenue this year. For its part, Uber faces a rising tide of lawsuits. The city of Chicago and Cook County, Illinois, have filed suit asking for fines amounting to $10,000 a day for each violation of a consumer's privacy. Washington state has filed a consumer protection lawsuit against Uber. The state attorney general has asked for $2,000 per violation. These suits could easily amount to millions of dollars in penalties. The company also faces two class action suits, Filed in federal courts last week, one in Los Angeles, the other in San Francisco. Finally, a well known and well connected Russian hacker has been convicted of additional charges in a U.S. court. Roman Selesnev, son of a prominent Duma member, was nabbed in 2014 on a U.S. warrant while attempting to return from a vacation in the Maldives. He was convicted in a Seattle federal court of 38 counts related to carding and fraud and sentenced to 27 years. This week, he received another 14 years, these from a federal court in Atlanta, upon conviction of one count of racketeering and one count of conspiracy to commit bank fraud. The Russian government has long denounced Selesnev's arrest as kidnapping. The U.S. calls it extradition. It's also a warning to choose your vacation spots with care. So you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash Cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash Cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. And joining me once again is Malek ben Salem. She's a senior manager of security and R&D at Accenture Labs. Malek, welcome back. Um, We wanted to touch on GDPR. It's uh, coming up next year. It'll be here before we know it. Uh, Why don't we just start off? uh, Why don't you run down some of the
1: numbers for us? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yeah, so uh, there's been a lot of talk about GDPR. It's a uh, use for people who, who are not familiar with it is a uh, use general data protection regulation, which will come into effect on May 25th uh, of 2018. Um, so Gartner released a report predicting that by the end of 2018, more than 50% of the companies will not be in full compliance with GDPR and that that number will be uh, 40% in 2020. Hmm. Um, Forrester predicts that 80% of companies will fail to comply in 2018. And I personally think that we're probably closer to the Forrester number, meaning the 80% uh, as opposed to the 50% predicted by Gartner. The reason is, is that many companies still don't know uh, if they need to comply or not. Uh, A survey by WatchGuard which was reported on CyberWire before, uh, predicted that 37% of global organizations are still unsure if they need to comply. So if you're unsure, you probably you probably need to comply.
0: <laughs> well, and there are some hefty fines too. So, I mean, it's in your best interest to find out.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it is uh, important to find out. It's important to make that investment. From a... Um, digital trust standpoint, right? So uh, GDPR is really driven by um, ensuring consumers privacy. And if you invest in it, there is an opportunity to build that trust with your clients. So you can turn this from a burden, right? All the requirements, you can turn that burden into an opportunity. Uh, So let's say the burden of identifying new categories of personal data. You can turn that into an opportunity to build more comprehensive customer profiles, the requirement of privacy by design and minimizing data. You can turn that into an opportunity to reduce the cost of retaining all of the data that is not necessary for your operations. The data breach notification, which we're all familiar with, right, you can turn that into an opportunity to build customer trust into your value proposition. So if businesses look at this the right way, uh, they can turn that investment that they put in into GDPR compliance into really uh, great opportunities for, for growing their reputation for building that trust with their clients.
0: Yeah, it seems to me like uh, no one's going to say, gosh, it's a shame uh, that you've put all these extra privacy uh, implementations in place. It, that's a good thing.
1: Absolutely. It is a good thing.
0: All right. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Gary Golem. He's the co-founder of Awake Security, a company that provides advanced security analytics. We began our conversation with a discussion about prioritization and how organizations are challenged with choosing where to allocate their money, talent, and time.
2: Prioritization to me is it's an ongoing challenge. Right. I mean like prioritization was was something that like I I saw a company struggling with in the very very early 2000s, right? And we still have that exact same issue today. And I think a lot of conversations around it are are very similar to what they were 15 plus years ago. And so so it is true that prioritization is a challenge. How, however, I think a, a a more substantial challenge that has arisen over time mm-hmm is regardless of how these things are prioritized, and these things are the list of things that you ultimately need to look at, right? It might be alerts, it might be, you know, there's a lot of different terms we use for for those things. It depends on the type of system you're sitting in front of. They still need to be looked at, regardless of how they're prioritized, right? So, So you could actually, in theory, knowing that prioritization is a challenge and is probably flawed still today, right? If you could get through more things, if you could be you know more effective as you go through those things, then it starts to compensate for how you've prioritized. And and again, prioritization will, I think, implicitly be flawed because you're, you're, you always have incomplete information, right? So prioritization can become less of an issue if you can be more effective and more accurate at how you, you go through those things. And so there's, there's actually, um, you know, concepts around that that I think are, could be kind of interesting to look at uh, as well.
0: And so take us through that. I mean, how can you uh, make those decisions?
2: One concept that, you know, we've been studying actually quite closely for a little while now is what we could call comparability. Uh, when you look at, say, you know, around the 2010 time frame, plus minus a couple years, you know, that, that puts us at the heyday of uh, exploit kits. Right? And, and kind of just mass compromises of, of endpoints. When you look at enterprise, like you look at a SOC during those time frames, and you, you look at a lot of the things that an average analyst was looking at, they had a lot of information available to them that allowed them to make comparisons that ultimately allowed them to make uh, decisions about uh, whether to respond appropriately to something or not. So, as a concrete example, You could get a new piece of malware that infects some endpoint, and it has a user agent string that looks kind of like a browser, but the word Windows or Microsoft or something is misspelled, which was surprisingly common back then. But you had a lot of additional information available to you that allowed you to make comparisons and see that, oh, this user agent is very, like, it looks wrong. And so even if you plug that user agent into Google, and you got no results back, so you didn't get a positive confirmation that it's malware. You had the information available to you to make comparisons, to make a decision on your own um, in absence of some other system or some other source telling you it was bad. And because of the way the attack surface has changed over the past, I mean, literally, I think over the past seven years has been pretty dramatic change the information that analysts had available to them to do those comparisons to make decisions effectively just intrinsically or implicitly with the information they have in front of them um, has gone has gone away in a lot of cases so you think about uh like a server application and looking at you know some of these more recent mega breaches right each server is very you know can be very different from each other and in fact the people who tend to know most about when you see a server and it's behaving in some particular way and you need to decide is this odd or is it not odd, a lot of times it's the server application developer who will know that best or can even know that in the first place unless you start working on whether it's characterizing or bringing in information, bringing information to the uh, analyst that allows them to, because they, they can't look at that behavior from a server um, and in many cases do a Google search and see if it should be acting that way or not, that's knowledge that's going to be intrinsic to the organization itself. So really filling those gaps for the analyst, which is, that's where the buck stops. You can alert to things all day long, but if um, somebody can't make an effective decision about whether that should be responded to or not, right, that's, that's, you, you lost your chance to, to respond to the thing. Um, and so anyways, comparability actually becomes a, a very important aspect that enables uh, analysts to, to make decisions compared to you know, should this be uh, behaving in this particular way, or what is you know business justified, if you will, in my environment.
0: That's Gary Golem from Awake Security, and that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.